we may walk in your ways in a world that is opposed to you and hostile to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just review here for a minute where we are in the book of Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel. Last time we saw chapter 4. And chapter 4 laid out a military campaign between Israel and the Philistines, which was a very common conflict in this era of Israel. There were frequent battles between the Philistines and the Israelites. And the battle that we saw last time in chapter 4 was a battle that was located between two towns. One was the town of Ebenezer, which is where Israel was camped, and the other town was the town of Aphek, which is where the Philistines were camped. And so the two armies meet in the middle. On day one of the conflict, Israel has a very serious loss, and she loses 4,000 soldiers. And so the Israelite army becomes desperate. Desperate times demand desperate measures. And so they call for the ark to be transported from Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was. They call for the ark to be transported to the place of battle. Now, having the ark at the battleground was not that unheard of. Joshua did it, as we saw last time. There was no problem in and of itself in having the ark at the battleground. The problem was the Israelites' attitude towards the ark. It was not a celebration of, wow, we've got the special presence of God with us. It was a celebration of, we've got our magic with us. We've got our lucky charm, our talisman with us. And so, sadly, the Israelites had developed this paganized view of God. And so, the Ark of Covenant of the Covenant appears. The next day, they engage in battle. And instead of losing 4,000 men, they lose 30,000 men. Seven, more than seven times the loss. And so, it is clear that the Ark of the Covenant is not being the exciting lucky charm that they wanted it to be. That same day when they lose 30,000 men, two priests by the name of Hophni and Phinehas, who we have studied, wicked priests, are also killed in the battle. And this was the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that God had given earlier in the book of Samuel that the house of Eli would be removed by God. And so... The two sons of Eli are killed in the battle, Hophni and Phinehas. They escorted the ark from Shiloh there to the battleground. And the final fulfillment of the prophecy that God would remove the house of Eli from the high priesthood wouldn't be fulfilled for a few more generations until Solomon was the king and Solomon removed the last of Eli's descendants, Abiathar, from the high priestly line. So you have 30,000 Israelite troops killed. You have Hophni and Phinehas killed. The runner runs from the battleground, makes his way back to Shiloh. He gives the message to the father of Hophni and Phinehas, Eli. And Eli himself dies because he learns the unimaginable. He learns the unthinkable that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who sits between the cherubim to use the full description of the ark as given to us in chapter 4. The ark has been taken captive by the Philistines. The ark is now in the possession of the pagans. And this is so unthinkable to Eli that Eli, who the text describes as heavy and old, 
falls out of his seat and breaks his neck. This is the context. This is the background for chapter 5. It's the background of anxiety and uncertainty and very difficult times for Israel. It's this description of anxiety and uncertainty because the special presence of God has left Israel and the Shekinah, which as we've seen before is a Hebrew word which means that which dwells. The Shekinah is no longer there with Israel. The Shekinah represented the special blessing of God. What the Philistines did is they took the God of Israel, so to speak. I mean, that was the custom. The custom back then for a conquering army, a victorious army, was to, to, to take the losing nation's gods. It was a way of showing dominance, a way of showing power not only over the defeated army, but over the gods that the defeated army celebrated. And so you have this relief that they found in the, the palace in Assyria, and you see the Assyrian soldiers here carrying, here are the soldiers with their, the classic Assyrian beards. We saw that the Philistines, they would go into battle clean-shaven. But the Assyrians, like the Hebrews, like the Babylonians, they had beards. So these are Assyrian soldiers who are carrying, this, these are not people, these are, they're carrying these gods that they have taken from some nation that they've defeated and they bring them back to the palace, to the Assyrian palace. These are kind of bragging rights, and that was the custom. So it's understandable when the Philistines defeat the Israelites with a, when you add both days together, a 34,000-man slaughter, that they also take the God of the Israelites, so they think. They think they're taking God by taking the Ark of the Covenant. That's kind of the background here for chapter 5. But what will happen in chapter 5 is that God will remind the Israelites that he is, of course, in complete control. That Yahweh is not the God of the pagans, a God who can be carried along in foreign... So much for the battery. A God who can be carried along by foreign troops. It is true that the Shekinah dwells over the two cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. But what God will show in chapter 5, the God of Israel, not the God of the pagans, but his name is Yahweh. What Yahweh will show to Israel and to the pagan Philistines is his omnipotence and his omniscience. Remember, we're in narrative literature. There are all kinds of different literature in the Bible. Sometimes there's apocalyptic literature, Apocalypsis, the, the Greek word apocalypsis just means revelation. So the book of Revelation is apocalyptic, revelatory li literature. Sometimes there's narrative literature. That's what we're in right now. But narrative literature, like in the book of Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, isn't just so that we read a story and we say, oh, hey, that's cool, that's an interesting event. Narrative literature is there to reveal God, to reveal the character of God, to reveal the essence of God. And so what we will see in our passage today in chapter 5 is the omnipotence of God. Yahweh is in complete control in the events that will unfold in chapter 5. He is not like the idols of the Philistines or the other peoples who live in the land of Canaan, idols that the Israelites had adopted, had integrated into their worship 
Chapter 5 will show that the idols were inept and impotent, where Yahweh will evidence his invulnerability and his invincibility. Chapter 5 is really a polemic, which is an attack. It is an, it is an attack against the idiocy of idolatry, and it is designed to teach the people to submit to the one true God. With that background and backstory as to what's going on, let's dive into our passage in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. It reads like this, Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Here's a map that shows kind of what this looks like. Let's see if we can get the pointer working. Yeah, it is working. So the green lines here are the Philistines who go north to Afik. Remember, the battle is between, is between these two towns, Afik, where the Philistines are gathered, Ebenezer, where the Israelites are gathered. That's chapter 4. The green lines are the, are the marching Philistine armies. They gather here. And this kind of reddish line is the ark coming from Shiloh to Ebenezer. The Israelites lose the battle. So then what the Philistines do is they take the ark and they're going to take it down to Ashdod. That's what we read here in verse 1. Then they're going to take it to another Philistine city, Gath, and then to another Ekron. And ultimately it's going to make its way back to uh, an Israelite city. And then this kind of reddish line is the Israelite control of the ark. The reddish lines on the map are Israelite control of the ark and the bluish lines our Philistine control of the ark, because the ark is going to have many travels over the next two chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6. Verse 2 of chapter 5 reads like this, And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon was the main Philistine god. He's probably a god of weather and fertility. Fertility would, would include crop productivity, crop, uh, fertility. The ancient Ugaritic texts describe Dagon as the father of Baal. Baal is the main god of the Canaanites. And the uh, Ugaritic texts, Ugarit, it's not on the map, but Ugarit was a very important city kind of just a little bit farther north, just east of Cyprus. So it's outside the land of Canaan. And the, the ancient Ugaritic texts kind of give us this little bit of history about Dagon, that he's, remember, we're talking about false gods. These gods don't exist. These are idolatrous gods. But when I say history about Dagon, I mean history about a phony god. And so the history about Dagon that the Ugaritic texts give us is that he was the father of the Canaanite god, Baal. That's kind of the background. And the Philistines... Remember, they go down to Egypt, they try and defeat the pharaoh, Ramses III. He spanks them, and they get repelled. And so they end up drifting and settling in the, the land of Canaan, just in kind of the southwestern coastal area of the land of Canaan. And that's where it appears the Philistines introduce this foreign god, Dagon, into the land of Canaan. But what I want you to see in verse 5 is that they... It says, they brought it, the ark, to the house of Dagon, meaning the temple of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. The Hebrew word there for by can be translated beside. 
what they have is they have Dagon on a pedestal. And then they put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon. So the Ark, the special presence of God, is lower than Dagon. And what they don't do when they get what they believe is God in a box, God's, is, Israel's God in a box to control, they don't go construct a new temple for the God of Israel. They put the God of Israel in their temple, in the Dagon temple. They have a number of different gods that they worship. And so what they're doing here is they're creating this kind of religious syncretism, which I think we've seen before. Syncretism is where you kind of merge things. You can have cultural syncretism. You can have religious syncretism. And that's what's happening here. The Philistines have a number of gods. They have Dagon as their main god. They have Beelzebub as one of their gods. They have Ashtaroth as one of their gods. And now they add a fourth god. They add an additional god, which is the god of Israel. What they're doing is they're integrating, they think, the god of Israel into their pantheon of gods. And we've seen Dagon before in our studies. The last time we saw Dagon was in Judges chapter 16, where Samson, is his eyes have been gouged out by the Philistines because Delilah betrayed him. They learned of his great strength. They cut his hair. They had him as a slave. They gouged at his, at his eyes. And remember in Judges 16, he's in Gaza. Gaza was one of the five Israelite cities. And so the Philistines there are mocking him, and they're praising their god, Dagon, same God, same chief God that we've been talking about. They're praising their God, Dagon, because Dagon has delivered to them, they think, their enemy, Samson. So what does the God of Israel do? He empowers Samson one last time to show the Philistines that their God is a no God. And so he empowers Samson one last time. Samson is... is Station. He has the young boy put him between the two pillars. Samson, with his final strength that God gives him, pushes the pillars aside. The temple of Dagon in Gaza collapses. Over 3,000 Philistines are killed. Samson himself is killed. But what we saw there is that in the, the city of Gaza, God used Samson to display his sovereignty and to display that, God, that Dagon is a useless God. And that Dagon should not be praised. Instead, Yahweh alone should be praised. And so as chapter 5 unfolds, we're going to see God do the same thing. We're going to see God do the same thing with respect to Dagon. Not in the small way that he did it with Samson. That was a small way. That was a small display of God's omnipotence. Where Samson breaks the, the pillars and causes 3,000 Philistines to die. That's, that, that's small potatoes. Because in chapter 5, God's not going to do it in one city of the Philistines, Gaza. He's going to do it in three cities. He's going to bring a plague that is a terrible plague on the men of, on the people of three cities of the Philistines. He's, he's going to do it in Ashdod, which is where we are right now in verse 5, in Gath and in Ekron. Look at verse 3. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, Behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. It's as if Dagon is prostrating himself before Yahweh, submitting to Yahweh. The sad thing is Dagon is powerless. 
right? Dagon's powerless. He doesn't even have enough power to stay on his pedestal. And then when he falls over, he doesn't have enough power to even get up. He needs his worshipers to put him up on the pedestal, to prop him up. This is the idiocy of idolatry. The psalmist says it so clearly in Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And then look at verse 8. This is the reckoning, because there's always a reckoning with God. God will not be mocked. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Look at verse 8. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them, meaning God will destroy the idolater with the idol. As we saw last time, false gods, idols, come in many different forms. Back then, it was very customary to make an idol out of wood, out of metal, out of bronze, out of some sort of material. Today, we're much more sophisticated. We, we, we still have physical idols. We, we looked at a number of different types of idols last time. We saw physical idols. We saw celebrities who are idols or personalities who are, who are idols. We saw even doctrines that, are, that can be idols because we don't worship doctrine. We worship the God of doctrine. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who gave us the Bible. Let me spend a few minutes today talking about a few more idols. Now, these idols that we have, as I say, in the modern area are much more sophisticated. They're much more subtle than the idols of old. Two idols that I want to talk about today are the idols, the false gods of science and of equality. The idol, the false god of science, is often expressed in evolutionary science. Evolutionary science teaches us that random evolutionary forces have created you and me. And so that science, that science claim, evolutionary science, asserts that it is more important than God and God's truth. That's what an idol is. The definition of an idol is a very simple definition. It's not complicated at all. It's anything that is more important to you than God. That's what an idol is. That's what a false god is. And so with evolutionary science, it makes a truth claim that we are made from random evolutionary forces. God makes a truth claim that he made us, that he owns us. If he made us, he owns us. That's part of really why idolatry exists, because they don't want to be under God. But I'll get to that in a minute. God makes a truth claim. Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and 2, unpack what that means. So God makes a truth claim that he created us. Evolutionary science makes a truth claim that we are the product of random evolutionary forces. Those two truth claims cannot be both true. They are inherently inconsistent. Either one is true or the other is true. And so science at least this branch of science, demands that we 
except which the overwhelming majority of universities today, of political thought, of cultural thought, of educational thought, accepts this evolutionary science. They don't just accept it, they demand it. And if you have the audacity, if you're a professor, a PhD guy, that doesn't agree with it, you're going to be marginalized. And so science is countered against the, the biblical truth, the divine truth of creation. When the person submits to science, this evolutionary science truth claim, what the person is doing is the person is elevating that truth claim above God's truth claim about creation. And so by definition, you have idolatry. You have a false God in terms of that evolutionary science principle. And like all idols, this, I'm focusing on evolutionary science. There are other principles of science that have, that have morphed into gods that we have made into false gods, into idols. But this evolutionary science principle, like all idols, is deceptive. It's deceptive because, of course, it's not science because you can't repeat it. You can't test it. You can't verify it. It's faith because no scientist has ever observed a monkey coming out of the jungle in the form of a human being. Never, right? So they believe it by faith. They believe natural selection by faith because they can't test it. They can't verify it. They can't repeat it, which is what science, at least classical science, is. And so that's one modern idol that, of course, is deceptive in and of itself because it is not science. It's really faith masquerading as science. Let me talk about the second idol. The second idol that I want to emphasize today is the idol of the false god of equality. Now, in the United States of America, we love this false god. And the way we get to this false god is very easy. We get to it on July 4th, right? The Declaration of Independence. It says all men are created equal. There we have it. Equality. That is an idol in our culture, and it's actually an idol, not just in our culture, but in much of the West. Of course, the signers of the Declaration of of Independence didn't mean the way equality, the modern view of equality, they meant equality under the law. They meant equal treatment of people under the law. And of course, the laws back then were tethered to biblical principles. The signers of the Declaration of Independence would have laughed, would have fallen out, out of their chairs laughing at our modern idea of equality. What our modern idea of equality, our modern idol, seeks to do is to remove God-ordained human differences like the differences when it comes to the physical anatomy between males and females right our god our false god equal of equality demands that we homogenize males and females because the false god of equality is not tethered to to the to the living god to the principles of the living god so we must homogenize we must make interchangeable the anatomies of males and females that's where you get transgenderism that's where you get abortion right the the reason why the why the progressive movement 
insists on abortion on demand is because it's an effort to, to make the anatomies of male and female the same. It's, it's submitting to the God of equality. And so if a male can have sex and not get pregnant, well then a female should have the ability to have sex and not get pregnant. And the way you achieve that is you have on-demand abortion. This is being subservient and obedient to the false god, to the idol of equality. The modern idea of equality also seeks to remove the God-ordained human differences when it comes to the roles of husband and wife because it seeks to make husband and wife roles interchangeable. It also seeks to remove the God-ordained differences between sexual activities. Right? It puts homosexual sex at the same level as heterosexual sex, which, of course, God ordained heterosexual sex in marriage to procreate, to continue humanity, where homosexual sex is designed to make humanity extinct by definition. I mean, if every, act, if every sexual activity was homosexual, then human, the, hu- the human race would go into extinction. And so what happens with the God, the false God of equality, is it requires homogeneity. It requires interchangeability. If this sort of sex is okay, then that sort of sex is okay. Because if we say that there's a difference, now we've done the sin of all sins. We've discriminated. And now discrimination is an offense against our God, against our God of equality. Some discrimination is appropriate. Some discrimination is godly. One more thing that the modern God of equality, the modern idea of equality seeks to remove in terms of God-ordained differences is religion. Religion. You've heard the phrase, all religions lead to God, right? I mean, we've got to have homogeneity among religions. And if we say that this religion, that Christianity as the West thought for centuries, is the only way to the true living God, then that is discrimination. That offends our new God, our false God, our God of equality. And so we must submit to our false God. All of these things that I've listed, just a few, there there are many more ways that the false God of equality produces sin and seeks to undo God's creation But all of these things are a product of obeying a false god. The false god of equality is the idol of the Marxist. It's the idol of the social justice warrior. This idol demands superiority over God, over the living God, and over his creation, and over his word. The devil was the first social justice warrior of all. Right? What does the devil seek? He's the first social justice warrior who demands equality. Isaiah 14, 14. I will make myself like the Most High, the devil says. I need equality with the Most High. I need equality with God. And then what does the devil do? The devil then takes that equality, takes his God of equality, and he sells it to the woman. He sells it, lock, stock, and barrel to the woman in Genesis. 
right? When he deceives the, Gen- the, the woman in Genesis 3, what does he say? You will be like God. Equality. Equality. The devil is the first of the social justice warriors who demands equality and equality, just like the false god of the of, of all false gods, just like the false god that that we see in every sort of idolatry, whether it is an idolatry of the Dagon or an idolatry of science or any sort of idolatry, the false god of equality is deceptive because, in fact, equality is a myth. Equality is a myth. It's not real. It's a fiction. It's a tool for tyrants to remove freedom. You saw it in the French Revolution. Remember the phrase? The phrase that is the rallying cry of the French Revolution. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Liberty, equality, fraternity. fraternity. What does the French Revolution produce? It produces the reign of terror with Robespierre, Robespierre who, who slaughters the thousands at the guillotine. And then when Robespierre, Robespierre as, my, as my French Revolution professor taught me, when Robespierre is at the very end and he walks into the, to the, to the hall full of people to persuade the next group of, of Frenchmen that will go to the guillotine, and he says, I have one last list, one last list in my pocket. And everybody's afraid they're on the list. So Robespierre goes to the guillotine. Everybody says, well, you're going to the guillotine because we don't trust you because you've slaughtered so many. The French Revolution, what they did is they used the God of equality to defeat as a tool for tyrants. Same thing with the Bolsheviks in the communist revolution. Remember, Stalin and Lenin slaughtered millions. Same thing for the communists in the Chinese revolution. Mao Zedong slaughtered tens of millions. And the rallying cry of all of these is the God of equality. Equality is what they were all pushing because equality is the tool that the tyrant uses. Equality and freedom are opposed to one another. Equality cannot exist with freedom. And freedom cannot exist with equality. In fact, freedom produces inequality every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Because if I'm free, then I'm free to succeed or I'm free to fail. But if you remove my ability to succeed or to fail because you're making equality, then I'm no longer free because you've homogenized me with everybody else. Freedom produces inequality by nature. Equality is a myth. Now, has God created us with equal value before him, equal privilege and equal opportunity for salvation, for sanctification? For eternal rewards, absolutely. Do we have equal worth before God, all being made in the image of God? The blacks, the whites, the Hispanics, the Asians, the tall, the short, the the, the males, the females, of course we're all made in the image of God. Absolutely. But God creates inequality. That's why I say equality is a myth. God creates the tall ones. God creates the ones who are more strong than others, more more muscles. God creates some who are smarter than others. God creates some who are faster than others. God creates in equality. There is a long list of things that some people are that others are not that are they're born that way, right? Some people are born as Vanderbilts 
or as Rockefellers. And some people are born as Smiths or Garcias. They're just regular Joes. But God has, has allowed some to be born into families of incredible wealth because God creates inequality. The God of equality is a false God. It's an idol. Do we all have equal privilege and equal opportunity before God? Absolutely. Do we all have equal value before God? Absolutely. But be careful to not worship at the altar of this false God of equality. What's happening in chapter 5 is the Philistines are engaging in idolatry and God is going to show that their idolatry is idiocy because they're treating the ark and the presence of Yahweh in their midst as idolatry. And God will show them that there are consequences for that. In the end, the true power of idolatry does not rest with the idol. The the power of the false god equality, the power of the false god evolutionary science, it's not in the idol. It's in the idol maker. We create the idol and the power is in us because we can create it or we can uncreate it. The person gives the power to the imaginary god. Idolatry is about elevating self above God. That's why there's the old saying, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. You've heard that saying, right? God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. Meaning, we're God. Now that's saying some attribute it to Voltaire, some attribute it to Mark Twain, some attribute it to, the, to a German playwright in the 1800s. We don't know who said the saying, but the saying is true. It's true. God made, it in us, made us in our own image and the overwhelming majority of humanity seeks to make himself God, to create himself as the God. As Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. It's a complete idol factory. And this is what the devil sold to the woman in Genesis 3.5. You will be like God. You're going to be God. You'll be the idol. You'll be able to, do, to establish right and wrong. You will know right and wrong. The reason God doesn't want you to eat from the tree is because you're going to be like him. You'll know right and wrong, which is to say you'll be able to establish right and wrong. The idol itself is powerless, and Yahweh shows this in chapter 5, verse 3 of 1 Samuel, where Dagon cannot even hold himself up, much less lift himself up to put himself back on the pedestal. He needs his worshipers to do that. And in verse 4, Yahweh will destroy Dagon. Yahweh will do what the ancient victorious armies did to the conquered. Look at verse 4. But when they arose early the next morning, this is day 2, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. As grotesque as it sounds what I'm about to say, this was the custom of victorious armies in ancient times. They would cut off the hands of those who they conquered. They would cut off the heads of those who they conquered. They would do that as trophies, kind of similar to what was done in North America with scalps, scalps of the defeated 
that, that they would be scalped. The Indians would scalp the defeated as a trophy to display what they had done. It's the same principle back in ancient times. They would cut off the hands and cut off the head to display their victory. This is a relief from the temple, the mortuary temple of Ramses III, the, the pharaoh in Egypt. And you see scribes who are counting hands. These are hands that they are counting. It's a grotesque scene that is etched in the rock. The reason they went to this effort, the reason Pharaoh commissions this artist to etch this in the rock is because these are bragging rights for Pharaoh. These are bragging rights in ancient times and he has his scribes count the hands so that he can boast of how many he has slaughtered. What the Philistines will do is not just not just what Pharaoh is doing here in terms of cutting off hands as a trophy. The Philistines will cut off heads. They will cut off King Saul's head after he is dead. They will cut off his head and display it as a trophy. David will cut off the head of Goliath to display it. This is what God does to Dagon, the great, mighty God of the Philistines, the king God, the, the, the highest of all the gods. He decapitates him. And he displays his head on the threshold and displays his hands on the thresholds and the Philistines understand exactly what has happened. They understand exactly what has happened with their God, that he has been humiliated. So look at what they do in verse 5. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. What they do is they create a superstition. They know that Dagon has been humiliated, so we are never... We've got to step over the threshold, because the threshold is where the hands and the head of Dagon once, Dagon once were. We must not ever desecrate the threshold. Right? You desecrate it by stepping on it. We're going to show respect to Dagon, even though he was defeated there temporarily. We're going to show respect to him. So we will always step over the threshold because that will be an offense to our God. This is the superstition that they develop. And so when 1 Samuel is being written generations later, you have, actually 1 Samuel, uh, this part of 1 Samuel is probably written by Samuel himself, but he's, he's writing it later in life. When he writes it years later, probably not generations later, he's saying that this superstition has continued in that temple in Ashdod. We're not talking about the temple in Gath, excuse me, in Gaza, where Samson destroyed the temple. This is another temple of Dagon. And in this temple, Dagon has been humiliated by the God of Israel. Look at verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. So the territories are, you know, kind of like you'd, you'd have Houston proper with all of its suburbs or Dallas with its suburbs. Those are the territories. Don't miss the irony here in verse 6. Dagon's hands are cut off. He's powerless. Where Yahweh's hand, on the other hand, is heavy against the Philistines of Ashdod, meaning his hand, Yahweh's hand, comes down with force against the Philistines, but their God, who they submit to, their chief God, who they submit to, Dagon, he has no hands. He's completely powerless. Yahweh 
brings judgment against the people of Ashdod by afflicting them with tumors. This is a plague of tumors. These are horrible, horrible tumors. It's the Hebrew word ophel. Ophel means a thickening of tissue in the groin area. This is probably hemorrhoids. This is a plague of hemorrhoids hemorrhoids that God imposes on the people of Ashdod. And these hemorrhoids are so severe that they will kill various Philistines. It's a horrible way to, to die. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 115 verse 8 that we saw earlier. Those who make them will become like them. Those who make idols will become like the idols. Everyone who trusts in them. God will destroy the idol and God will destroy the idolater because the words of Yahweh, which he speaks in Isaiah 42, 8, are words that must be remembered by all peoples at all times. Remember what Yahweh says there through the prophet Isaiah? He says, I am Yahweh. He doesn't say, I'm the Lord. He says, I am Yahweh. That is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. That's a statement. The context there is idolatry. God is jealous for his name. Jealous, not in a sinful way, like we are, are, can be jealous of that guy's stuff or that girl's stuff. Jealous for his name. He does not allow, he does not tolerate mocking of his name. He doesn't drop the hammer immediately, but there's always a reckoning for idolatry. Look at verse 7. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. This is pathetic, their statement, right? They say, get it, go, 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 get, get, get the ark out of here. We don't want this plague. They want Yahweh to be gone. They say that Yahweh's hand is heavy on Dagon. They understand that Dagon is inferior to Yahweh. They understand that Yahweh is more powerful than Dagon, so they want Yahweh gone so that they can get back to Dagon, to their relationship with Dagon. It's a sad, pathetic situation for the Philistines. Right? Not all pagans are this way. Remember the pagans in Jonah chapter 1, we were on the boat and the storm comes, and the pagans are praying to their gods. It says in the, the sailors, the captain and the sailors, they're praying to their gods, little g, gods plural, in Jonah chapter 1, to no avail. And they find out that Jonah is running from the God, from the God of Israel. Then what do they do? They stop praying to their gods in response to the power of the God who is, these pagans, in Jonah chapter 1, it says that they feared Yahweh. It doesn't say they feared God's little g with an S on the end. It says they feared Yahweh. It says they called on Yahweh. It says they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. That's the proper response to the revelation of God. But for the Philistines, their approach is get Yahweh out of here quickly even though we recognize that Dagon is being hammered by Yahweh that Dagon is subservient and subject to Yahweh and weaker than Yahweh we want Dagon not Yahweh they miss the opportunity God punishes in grace when God punishes it's an act of mercy it's an act of correction 
It's an opportunity to see his power and to submit to him. But often unbelievers respond to the punishment of God by rejecting him, which is what the Philistines are doing here. Look at verse 8. So they, set, so they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel to Gath. Notice how many times it says, Of the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel. It doesn't say the ark of Dagon. The ark of the God of Israel. But their response is to mock him. To treat him with a paganized view. Here's what happens. The lords of the Philistines is a reference to the rulers of the Philistines. They have rulers just like any other nation. And the rulers of the Philistines don't want to get rid of their trophy. There must be something wrong with those boys at Ashdod. That's why they've got all these, this plague of hemorrhoids. That's why this disaster is happening to them. But we want the trophy, the ruler said, so bring it to another city. Don't give it back to the Israelites. Bring it to another one of our cities. Because maybe we can get a little mojo. Maybe we can get a little magic, some good vibes from the ark. Those boys from Ashdod, they're doing something wrong. Let's bring it to Gath instead of Ashdod. Let's bring it to another city. Here's what happens. The citizens of a nation benefit from the good decisions of their leaders and they suffer from the bad decisions of their leaders. We know that very well in our nation. And it's the same thing for the Philistines. So the Philistine citizens will continue to suffer because of their leaders' poor decisions. Look at verse 9. After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with great confusion. This is Gath now, the, the, the second city of the Philistines. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors, same plague, so that tumors broke out on them. The Philistines of Gath are the second Philistine city that held the ark as a trophy, and they are afflicted with the same affliction, the same ugly tumors as the first city of Ashdod. So they say, get this ark away from us, the people of Gath. Now it's going to go to a third city of the Philistines, Ekron. Verse 10, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of God of Israel, again, same phrase, they have brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. The word's out now. The word is out among the Philistines that that ark brings trouble. We don't want it. The people of Ashdod have had that horrible plague of tumors. It's a euphemistic way of saying hemorrhoids. They've had that horrible plague of tumors and it has killed some of them. Then the next city, the, the, the Gathites, have had the same plague and now you're bringing it to us? The people of Ekron say, get it out of here. We don't want it. Look at verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. All three Philistine cities suffer the same affliction. Some die from the, from the plague, and others 
want to die from the plague because the misery is so intense. They know that all of this 